0: What's good, everybody? I'm John G. Stremski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey everybody,
2: Larry Wilmore here. Welcome to Black on the Air. Nice to have you listening to the podcast on a very special episode today. It is October thirtieth, and it's my birthday, y'all! It's my birthday. <laughs> very exciting, uh, very special episode with. Um, as you know, magic is one of my lifelong hobbies, started at the age of seven. And man, one of the people I admire the most in the world of magic, David Copperfield. You guys, David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty vanish. He made that shit vanish. <laughs> David Copperfield is my special guest today. And we're going to talk about his career, his collection. Um, he has a book out on the history of magic. It's a fascinating book. I was in Las Vegas um, about a week and a half ago. And I have to say again, I think I mentioned it last week. Man, um, went to see a show and then afterwards took a tour of his museum, like a midnight tour. You know, and if you're a comedy nerd like me, it was the best thing in the world. It was amazing uh, being able to touch things that were Houdini's and Malini's and, you know, all the great names and magic and all that stuff. Plus, trying to get also getting into the mind of somebody who's done it at the top of his game. Anytime you could talk to anybody who's done something, no matter what it is, at the top of their game and they're at the top of the field, they're the best of the best. It's very cool um so guys I really enjoyed that so it's my birthday you guys I don't know if I want to talk about anything I don't feel like talking about anything like controversial but you know the thing I'm uh, I feel like I should at least say something about but um I'll talk about the bigger issue I know the Dave Chappelle thing I know you guys have been following that I was reluctant to talk about it because I really don't talk about other comedians. You know, it's just not if you listen to my podcast, you know, it's not something that I do, Um, especially me. It's like, who am I to talk about somebody? I called the president my nigga. I'm the last person to be calling somebody out. Right. But it is fascinating to see what is happening uh, with Chappelle. If you haven't been following it, you know, this uh, his latest special on Netflix kind of got in hot water with a. Uh, people from the trans community especially Um, as this special and some of his other specials he's done a lot of jokes let's say at their expense Um, and they have not liked it and it's it's almost been like a battle I don't know if it's a battle because I don't know you know it's like a one-way battle or something I don't know it's kind of interesting to see though but Rather than get into, you know, what he says or this and that, like I said, I don't really do that type of thing. The whole issue of cancel culture's been fascinating to me to watch around it. Very interesting. I will say this though. I'll say this about the Chappelle thing. Um the issue of punching down. Like what is punching down? What does that mean, right? What like why would people be so upset about jokes being made about them. When other people say oh, jokes were made about me, I didn't, you know, I was fine with it. I came up with this theory a couple of years ago when I was doing the Nightly Show. Uh, it's kind of a silly one. It's really not that deep. But it was only because this is the way my brain works. You know how it works, guys. I always like to come up with theories. I like to. I would like to get clarity about things. I just do it as a, you know, it's just the way my brain works. It helps me to think about things a little more clearly. But I was thinking about, especially when I was launching the nightly show, like what's proper to make fun of and what isn't? And I don't even know if proper is the right word because I don't want it to get into permissions, you know, because I personally think on a personal level, you can make fun of anything, you know, but the other question may be time and place. When is the right time and place, venue, context? What's the context for what you're making fun of, you know? Timing and place are a big part of it, right? But I think... You know, which is why I'm probably in comedy, because I think you can make fun of everything. Not everybody feels that way. <clears throat> and I understand. Everybody has a right to feel how they feel about that, you know. But why do some people feel picked on and other people don't, right? Why is that? Is it because the thing that is being said about them is bad or negative? Maybe. It might be, you know. It, it could be said about other people, too. Why do they shrug it off? Here, here's my theory for this. I call it top dog, underdog. Uh, dynamic in comedy okay and here's here's how it works and by the way it it's not just comedy it's in who you're allowed to take jabs at okay underdog gets to make fun of top dog okay but top dog does not get to make fun of underdog that's just the way it works underdog gets to make as many jokes as they want about top dog top dog unfortunately does not get to make jokes about underdog but guess what you get top dog you get to be top dog congratulations that's the dynamic that and i shared it with my staff and we talked about it for a while this is when i was doing the nightly show and it's not just jokes it's in like just the ability to ask for something and protest and whose rights do we get to pay attention to now? The top dog underdog dynamic. You've seen it in the political world a lot too. You know, Whose side are we on when someone gets attacked? And it usually follows the top dog underdog dynamic. It was fascinating when Barack Obama was running against Hillary Clinton because they're both top dog underdog in different ways. Obama being a man, Hillary being a woman, he had top dog to her underdog as woman. But Hillary being white and <laughs> Obama being black, she had top dog to his underdog with black and white. So it's interesting how that dynamic played out and who was able to go on the attack for certain things and who couldn't, you know, because normally in a man-woman race, the woman can attack the man in ways that the man can attack the woman. Top dog, underdog, dynamic at work there. So it's not just jokes, too. It's It's other types of dynamics, you know. And I'm not even saying that's right or wrong or whether I agree with it. That's just something I observed. You know, top dog, if you're going to go after underdog, you better be prepared for blowback because that's one of the dynamics of the world. (laughs) It just doesn't work out like that. And clearly in our world today, the trans community is underdog with I can't think of another community that's more underdog than the trans community. You know, so if you're going to make jokes about them, just be prepared. For blowback, is my observation on that. The other thing I have to say is cancel culture. I've seen a lot of articles about this. Um, on one side, people say even John Stewart, which kind of surprised me. There's no such thing as cancel culture. Cancel culture doesn't exist. Blah blah blah. It's just these are just the consequences, you know. Okay. And the other part, on the other side, people say ah, oh, there's cancel culture as if this thing just started like five years ago because of Twitter or something like that. You know, people can't take things anymore. It used to be people could take a joke, blah, blah, blah. Okay. As expected, I disagree with both of these points of view as, you know, being the contrary that I am because my point is guys, when did we not have cancel culture? When did we not? We have always had cancel, cancel culture. Guys, Adam, Adam, was canceled
1: from the Garden of Eden from for sakes. The whole story of Adam and Eve is about getting canceled from the from the Garden of Eden, the best place
2: ever. Adam was canceled. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the you know, the Lord and Savior for people that are Christians was canceled by his own people and put upon a cross to be killed. Be- Why? Because of the things he said were unpopular. People didn't like it. It started a whole religion. Jesus Christ wasn't just crucified. He was canceled. I mean, cancellations have happened all through society. You know, in recent history, the cancellations have been from the right. In the last century, you know, in culture, Fatty Arbuckle famously canceled in the 1920s, uh, People blaming him for the death of some starlet who, you know, was was raped in his home or something like that. He was found not guilty, canceled. Many performers in the 30s who were thought to be communists and that sort of thing. The whole blacklist, the whole blacklist in America was a cancellation, (laughs) a cancellation event, canceled. The way that gay people have been canceled is breathtakingly cruel guys um the the gay movement especially in america where you could get your whole life would be canceled if people just found out you were a homosexual that's how gay people were canceled you didn't even have to say shit you didn't have to say shit it was one of the things that like the cia and stuff used for blackmail to find out if you were homosexual Think about that, <laughs> just they just find out you're homosexual bam canceled that's it, just for being yourself, motherfucker, take that that's one of the worst type of cancellations, just for being gay, you didn't do shit and you were canceled. that wasn't that long ago, you know, of course, black people we were canceled you know for so many things, just for the color of our skin um. More recently, it has shifted from the right to the left. The left seems to be more concerned with canceling people. And most of the time, it's over speech. This happened a lot, you know, with the whole political correctness and that sort of thing in the late 80s, early 90s. But has really kind of been their thing, you know, is to be the guardians of the culture. Whoever is guarding the culture, by the way, those are the ones in charge of the cancellation. They determine. But cancellation takes on different forms. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to work. It doesn't mean that your life is over. Sometimes it can. It just means you are no longer invited to the party called the major culture. You're no longer. Your invitation. It's like the the cookout for black people. Your cookout invitation has been rescinded. Sorry. <laughs>
1: You
2: you cannot sell your ticket. You cannot transfer it. Your ticket is no and void. You cannot come to the cookout. And cancellation is who gets to to participate in the culture at large. Who gets to participate? That's what cancellation is. It doesn't mean you lose your job. It doesn't mean this and that. It can mean that. But it really means who's allowed to participate in the culture at large. And the guardians decide that. Whoever the guardians is. Right now it's the left. Used to be the right. For a long time always been there guys always from the beginning it has always been a part of culture it's just taken on different forms so let's not fool ourselves and act like it doesn't exist the only thing is is you know how do we deal with it what are we going to do about it you know we're allowed to have different opinions about it you know people can be right and wrong and that sort of thing i hope dave does talk to the um people who are saying they're you know leaders and that kind of stuff and have a dialogue but I hope that dialogue is public I hope there's like a public dialogue about this but I hope it goes more into the nature of maybe well I don't know I don't know I'll talk about that a little later we'll see I'll think that through a little bit more but we'll see what's gonna happen but it fascinates me because as you know I like to kind of take the macro look at it and that type of thing and talk about the dynamics of it but it is interesting you guys Um, I will talk about my own little cancellation at some point. I'm not going to do it today because it's my birthday then. But I will talk about it. Something happened to me about 30 years ago. In fact, almost exactly 30 years ago. Um, This type of thing, in a sense. All right. Nice tease. See how I did that. All right, guys. Really fun episode coming up. It's my birthday. We got to celebrate it right. So we got to (laughs) have
1: the one and only David Copperfield right after this. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe.
2: All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, As I said, this is a very, very special show today. I am literally a kid in a candy shop. That is no exaggeration. You will find out why in a second. Uh, The man who I'm about to introduce is not only a huge inspiration to me, guys, uh, not just in the world of magic, but in the world of creativity. Um, He's a legend. This is not (laughs) an exaggeration. He's one of of the legends of our time because he's the most, uh, arguably the most, uh, successful magician of all time and we'll talk about that later i want to talk about that with the get his opinion on it but it's it's uh, proven in the fact that he's won every award you could possibly win in magic including one i gave out to him i think it was magician of the millennium i don't even remember what it was it was something <laughs> like that it had to be he's won like 21 emmys tons of that but not only that he, uh this man has changed the relationship of magic to the audience through storytelling and that is what i appreciate the most david copperfield Welcome to back on the Air. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan of yours, too, oh, so man, you're so kind. Thank you. And let me just tell the audience how kind you actually are. This man, after his show last night, gave us a tour of his museum, you guys, for like a couple of hours. And me, like the little kid that I am, you know, was you know I'm trying to crack jokes and speeches because I, I couldn't believe where I was. But thank you so much for that. It's it it's fun. a gorgeous place that you have here. Thank you. You've got a great team, and they really were a perfect audience
0: for this. Yeah.
2: You know. It turned out great. And David's new book, The History of Magic, is kind of like a walkthrough uh, of this kind of magical place. And uh really is a gorgeous book um, that you've put out. It's kind of your journey through magic, some of the people you've admired, and... Have studied in that sort of thing, and and kind of uh, kind of gives us kind of a, a spine for magic over the past yeah. what like five hundred years maybe. Yeah, yeah, you bet. And it's it really takes you through the the history of our art form.
0: Yeah, through my eyes. Right. You know, I obviously love this art form. I've looked to my past masters. You know recently really looked through to all of their work to to build upon that work and to mm-hmm. take it to, to a new way yeah and as you know and you know magic very very well so it's it's really very great to talk to somebody oh. that has yes. when you do lots
2: of interviews for a book oh yes. people have no exactly. clue yes. you have to you
0: have every clue because oh. you've uh really really know the stuff well
2: i love it your love for it comes out in this place even the way it's lit it's warm it's inviting it's this uh, super den, every room. Uh, it's just filled with love and appreciation, but there's there's something about it, too, that is almost like a time machine, a lot of this. Uh, time travel is a big theme in your magic. I'm fascinated with time travel. Is that... I wanted to ask why you started collecting in the first place. Is it kind of a way of staying connected to that past and, yes. and the people yeah. of magic? Yeah, my
0: history of... of- You know, my magic world was never looking backwards. I never looked back. Didn't care about history at all. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. When I was a kid, I just was always inventing new magic, creating new things. When I was 12, I invented a thing that was in Tarbell. That was a pretty amazing, heady thing to do, to have an invention of yours at 12 years old in a very important... magic encyclopedia.
2: Right.
0: And I never really looked back. I knew enough of history, mm-hmm. but then a guy named Mike Caveny, a guy that you know, mm-hmm. absolutely uh, said this Mulholland Library is going to be up for sale and it's going to be split up. It's going to be auctioned off to a million people. You've got to keep
2: it together. And I
0: said, well, I you know, I'm always looking forward. I'm never really looking back. Wait,
2: hold on a second. Because you're David Copperfield at this point. I mean, you're like this is like way far down the line in terms of where you were in your career when you yeah. when this uh, started I guess right that's right wow. I, it was I was David Coffer because I kept trying
0: to push it forward knowing enough about the past but really didn't study it I didn't right. have that passion for it honestly and um, but when I he convinced me to, to buy this collection, which is one-fifth of what you see here today. Sure. Um, and But John Mulholland was this amazing mm-hmm. writer, historian, performer, worked for the CIA, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, creating clandestine kind of magic to help uh, the Cold War operations and so forth. Um, and it was an interesting guy. He had half of Houdini's library wow. was given to him. The other half was given to the Library of Congress.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So... Anyway, I got all this stuff and I said, oh, do I? You know, what do i do i guess i'm doing the right thing mm-hmm. but then i started understanding about the lives of these different individuals mm. and suddenly a light bulb went off in my head that this is really important it really matters these are stories that match mine these are stories yeah. of all the, the the trials and tribulations of everything that they went through you you and i were talking about mm-hmm. your your career you know before we started this thing and these guys have the same thing the same yeah. ups and downs and rights and lefts and same thing as me you know mm-hmm. same and so it suddenly became interesting because of story mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't a museum. It was a, a, a place of individuals and stories, and the the, the props weren't props. The mm-hmm. props were uh, infused with amazing, uh, well, uh, situations and everything mm-hmm. we could really relate to. You know, to me, it was about being relatable. Magic was always about being relatable. Right? Um, when you know, we were kids. Magic stories was about the princess of Thebes or yes. the great Chinese water torture right. thing. It was always like it was mm-hmm. always about the lands that uh, of unknown lands, mm-hmm. and I was always going. Well, you know, music isn't like that. Music—they're telling really personal stories in music, sure. in in films, or you know, any of your television work. It's always about relatable right. personalities and trials and tribulations. So my magic was all about that. It was about my, my girlfriend leaving me, or my, or, or you know, my my. All the you know, things that people were really relatable. I wasn't levit. I was levitating people, but I would mm-hmm. uh, eventually I would fly because I knew that was a really relatable thing. People dreamed right. about flying. Uh, People liked Houdini because it was escaping. People That was a relatable thing. People could picture themselves escaping mm-hmm. from something. They couldn't picture themselves pulling feather flowers out of their hat, you know? <laughs> yes, right. So it was finding right. the way that it was a relatable thing that really could speak to an audience that had nothing to do with magic.
2: And people really are of their times, too, in the ways in which they relate. We talked a little bit about that last night when uh, your collection of Robert Houdin, who arguably... Would you call him the father of modern magic, maybe? That's what they, that's what they say. But he took yeah. magic off the streets. it mm-hmm. was all street performers. And this is in the mid-19th century. That's right. right. Mm-hmm.
0: In the 1840s. And he said, we're going to dress sophisticated-like. We're going right. we're, right. we're to take magic and put it in the parlors and people's yes. houses. And, you know, people did do shows in people's houses. He created a house. Right. Uh, the theater looked like someone's his living room. So people were invited into that kind of uh-huh. sharing of automaton, sharing of new inventions and so forth. And uh, so he really... Was an inventor, yeah. which I try to be, uh, and uh, you know, storyteller, and uh, and uh, put magic kind of framed it in a different way, yeah. uh, which is something I'm very much involved with, framing magic in a way that people can really relate to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but when I got back to your question, when I when I got this stuff. Mm-hmm i kind of fell in love with the stories of it right you know it wasn't right. about the stuff or the rarest book or the yes. you know the human skin that wrapped the book <laughs> you know it wasn't about yes. this to me it was about where is the point what's the point of this mm-hmm. stuff um another collection i bought was bob albo bob albo was a, um, a doctor who uh, was the raiders doctor back when they were someplace else oh, in wow. Vegas. and he had all this greatest props the greatest mm-hmm. apparatus not brought belong to anybody and I bought all the stuff just to have it, not knowing exactly why. There principles that I could use, mm-hmm. maybe technology and technique in all those props, but it was a bunch of props. Yeah. And then one day, five years ago, I had all this stuff and I said, I'm going to make a magic shop. I'm going to make the magic shop of my childhood. Right. And then suddenly that framework made it make sense. Yeah. Suddenly this all this great stuff that had great technology you can learn, mm-hmm. framing it in the magic store of my youth. Now people could touch it and relate right. to it, you know. Right. So it's finding ways to to make things make sense. My my friend Simon Senek has got all these things about the why of something. He mm-hmm. says it very very well. What's the why of something? What's the point of it? Yeah, I you love know? that. And mm-hmm. um, uh, everything that works, everything that I did right, I had done that not knowing it. Right. <laughs> you know, everything that Apple made. The, they understood the point of it was That's what right. you could do with the computer, and you know what, how, how you could use it to explore ideas and dreams. It wasn't mm-hmm. about the hardware; it was about where it could take what, you.
2: What's the intent? What's the, the intent?
0: There's got to be a purpose there. And you can and anything good that you did, mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Wilmore, anything good, writing, a producer, and creating. It's you look back, and you say, there's always a very always. clear clarity, always of things. Yeah. And you know, in my magic. When it's been good, sometimes it hasn't <laughs> been perfect, but sure. you know when it's been good, it's because I knew instinct instinctually that I should just um, instinctively, right? I knew instinctively that I should, um, you know, have the core value of that mm-hmm. thing, the core thing to communicate. Every illusion. Had an honesty about it. Mm-hmm. You talk about magic being honest, kind of weird. You're not being honest. You're, we're fooling. We're trying to amaze yes. people, but there had to be an mm-hmm. honesty. There, worked, there has there was... to be
2: honesty in this act of deception. Yeah, and, yes, which uh, is kind of ironic. It sounds yeah. like an oxymoron, but it actually is true.
1: And you know, yeah.
2: I, I don't treat it as deception. I treat it mm-hmm. as kind of inspiration.
0: Sure, of trying to, to really not trying to be better than, but try right. to involve the audience in, in that unique way. So anyway, the museum. You know, the, the seed of it was this first purchase that I made. Mm-hmm. And then everything started to make sense when I understood the individuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, and, I, and I love it for that reason. And yeah. I can share it in a way
2: that is uh, interesting and not just a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And that is what's unique about the art of magic is that, you know, when you, you talked about acting and that type of thing, or even literature, we have books and that sort of thing. Uh, with acting hopefully we have clips of people art of course you have artwork but magic is is unique in the sense that there are props (laughs) you know sometimes sometimes. yes sometimes but sometimes there are these instruments that was between the audience and the performer that served this unique purpose that no other art form quite has that you know well I mean music does have an instrument right sure you know
0: there is a piano that you play one right there, right? You know, a, there That's is a, there's a thing to to transmit it, but you know, in my work, I'm really trying to move magic forward. I'm not trying to duplicate what's done in the past. I'm right. really making ever. It's not really worth it for me to, to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, even when I was starting, with when I didn't know exactly what to do, illusion wise, I would take um, uh, the zigzag and I would dance with it. I do it as a date with a magician, right? You know, I remember that. Uh, yeah. You know, I would uh, <laughs> uh, do a levitation, but. It was framed as an MGM musical like American in Paris. Yeah. I did the Dancing Cane. Right. I did, you know, I did, it was all that piece of music drove it, you yeah. know. Um, and then finally I started inventing my own technology, my own methods to it. So I felt like I was had
2: a purpose. Well, let's go back. I want to, for the audience's sake, I want to go back to your origin story. Audiences, I mean, love hearing these things. David. And I'm sure you've talked about it before. Before your first, the first time you saw magic, and what did it do to you? Where was it? Where were you? What did you see? I saw magic probably on the Ed Sullivan show. Okay, I, I saw, so you saw it on television.
0: Mm-hmm. I saw Channing Pollock. I saw uh, Fantasio. I saw Mister Electric, Marvin Roy. I remember with my mom watching mm-hmm. the light bulb and the, his wife Carol appear in the light bulb and, figured, and really discussing with my mom how is that possible on black, black and white old TV. Were you a real, um, real logical kid? Did you? Were you a kid that needed to figure things out? Was that what it was? You know, here's the story was this. I, I uh, didn't fall in love with magic by watching that. You know, uh-huh. I liked it, but um, I felt there was too many magicians at, yeah. at the time. <laughs> there was, and there was, like, very few ventriloquists. Right. Um, I was wrong about that, but that was the impression yes, I had. Yes. <laughs> but I watched Paul Winchell. And Paul Winchell was a gigantic inspiration yes. because, he, he, you know, I was an only child, so he had a friend, you know, I had a puppet that was mm-hmm. his friend. So I think maybe I wanted to have a, a friend that I could control. Jerry Mahoney. <laughs> you know, Jerry yeah. Mahoney. And I loved Paul Winchell. So he was a path, genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really a genius in many ways. Yes. You know, had some challenges because of his genius, I think. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, he invented the artificial heart. Crazy. Guys, a
2: ventriloquist invented the artificial heart. That's crazy. And disposable razors. (laughs) Virtually a better invention. (laughs) Um, But
0: yeah, and you know, uh, later on, I became friendly with him. Uh I have his patents. I have his
2: scrapbooks. I have all his you know drawings from when he was a kid. It's just a brilliant, brilliant. And you were first attracted to ventriloquism as a as a form of expression, I guess you could say. I
0: think so. In you know.
2: entertainment, and did you immediately like performing when you were doing that? Like, so I did my
0: first show. Mm-hmm. I, I got my parents got me a Jerry Mahoney dummy.
2: Mm-hmm. He,
0: by the way, was the voice of Tigger. People out there will know That's him right. as the voice of Tigger from mm-hmm. Disney. Woo-hoo-hoo, you know that guy. Yeah.
2: Um, and my I always called, called him Tigro T- I thought Tigger. <laughs> I found Tigger offensive. That's just me. You know? <laughs> he was of color. It's just He was orange. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Finally, someone has pointed that out. Thank you, Tigger.
1: It took. David Copperfield to explain figure, you guys.
2: Thank you. <laughs> um, but, but,
0: uh, yeah, he was, he was really, really great. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I bought my parents bought me a Jerry Mahoney dummy. Mm-hmm. And, um, I did my show yeah. f- at the fifth grade wow. and the kids kind of liked me. Ah. <laughs> they kind Oh, you're good. The girls yeah. are going, David, that is cute. I got, you know, I got a little bit of attention uh-huh. and, um, but I kind of sucked, you know right. i I knew I sucked
2: it wasn't I wasn't right, and i you the... don't you don't really suck at that age it's it's still cute at that age, you think, yeah, absolutely, you can't really suck at that age if you, if you go back and you look at what the other kids are doing. Trust me, what yeah. you were doing was not sucky. That was elevating from what everybody else was doing. Oh, you see kids
0: on AGT, mm-hmm. you see kids.
2: That are well, like, now they're yeah. unbelievably
0: great. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. compared to them, I
2: sucked. Well, now uh, they're savants. You know, like the parents are whipping them. You yeah, know, you yeah. get out there and do that. Yeah. stuff. But I, I my, my parents weren't whipping me. Right. Um, they actually, my mom
0: did give me a couple of smacks, but mm-hmm. um, that's another story. Uh, but I think that uh, I knew in my heart. I wasn't very good. Right. And I I thought maybe it was the dummy that was the problem. Yes. <laughs> uh, I was blaming Transferring my blame, by the way. That's very true. Very nice the thing. The carpenter's blaming the yeah. my <laughs> We went to Macy's. We went to Macy's. <laughs> magic. Mm-hmm. And Macy's had a magic counter. Okay. And a guy named Danny Tsakoulis had this little trick with a board. And I started... You know, f- falling in love with magic, mm-hmm. and uh, and what tr- was that trick? The trick of it was. The a, board. It was a board. Um, it was called the magic panel board. He called mm-hmm. it, and a coin would disappear and reappear on the board. It took some skill, um, and it was a ball in a, a vase, ball in a tube, mm-hmm. not a ball in a vase, ball in a
2: tube. Right. Some really cool little things. I started doing. It. I said, "There's something here. I kind of like this." So this was different. So here's what I'm getting at. So when you went to Macy's, that's a different experience than when you were watching it on television. Like when you saw that board, because you you talk about that board in such vivid terms, that board was a different experience than seeing Channon Pollock fanning cards or being be great. Being great, yeah. Right. I
0: I just felt it was something that kind of captured my imagination for whatever reason. Right. And then I would go, like you said, to the uh, library in Matuchin I grew up in Metuchen, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. The public library, and they would have like about. 12 inches full of books. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the magic thing. When you were a kid, you yeah, magic books from the library? Absolutely. How many, sh- did they have more than one shelf, a partial shelf? No,
2: it was very limited. Um, Amateur Magician's Handbook was one of them. I read like... That's good, though. That's really good. It's fantastic. It was amazing how much information was there. A couple of Harry Lorraine books were in there. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um his memory stuff was most of the things that that was kind of generally available i remember scarn stuff john scarn scarn cards i think i may have found in a regular store which was an amazing book by the way yeah. um but it was mainly those types of things you couldn't find anything re- oh you know one of my favorites is us the puffin book of magic do you remember that no. book re- we should look puffin book of magic is fantastic yeah. puffin book oh, of magic fantastic. with a puffin like a bird yeah. like a- david this is fantastic did I find a book that is not here? Well, we're going to find out. This is a challenge. So have them look it up right now. Actually. You have to see this. As a kid, it was the best thing. I mean, it showed you how to make color change your handkerchief. Wow. And, you know, all kinds of stuff in there. And I think it was from Canada. Uh, but that book really fueled my imagination because mm. it was kind of arts and crafty, too, which I'm not good on that kind of stuff. You know, a maker. But it, I'm really not, you know. I'm more of a of a vision person. I get ideas for things, but I'm not a practical putting mm-hmm. putting it um, together. But it it made me think for the first time that you can make things. You don't have to buy something. I didn't have any money, so there was always a barrier in a magic shop of buying something. Yeah. You know, but the fact that you could make something. Like, I'd get a, some foil and make my own zombie, you know, that type of stuff. <laughs> you know? well, I didn't know magic shops existed. That yeah. was a revelation for me. Right. So at the time, I'd go to the
0: library and I'd take out the magic books. And I would challenge myself for some reason. I would read the first page mm-hmm. of the the effect, you know, show show what the illusion was supposed to look like. Okay. And I refused to turn the page where the explanation was on the second part of the, on mm-hmm. the, of the page. And I would just challenge myself to try to figure out a way of making... What it said would happen, mm-hmm. happen, and I started inventing stuff, you know, before I turned the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them your I own
2: might... version of it, or just something different? Different method,
0: in other words, it would say, right. Well, you know, three cards will become four cards, you know, and how would you do it like this? Mm-hmm. Or the card, some would disappear, and bef- on the next page, it would show the expected method, methodology behind right. it. So I wouldn't turn the page, I would. Try to figure out my own method, and sometimes my methods were worse, and sometimes my methods were better, sure, but at least I was kind of doing that mm-hmm. um and that started me off in that the path of trying to create new things and I was kind of good at it. I was pretty good, you know I was mm-hmm. sucked at baseball and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> h- hockey and I was, I was
2: it wasn't good uh-huh. but this i was I was good at, so I found kind of a place for myself and did your friends kind of start seeing that in you that there was something special going on hey man this is the guy that invents magic tricks
1: yeah they still thought
2: i was an idiot but
1: <laughs> but uh, but
0: i still i knew myself i was doing accomplishing something
2: right you were doing something that was a little different than what normal people who would even interested in magic were probably doing at that age cause... and then i found the magic store in new york
0: this tannin's magic shop in yeah. new york and when i went there i was home it was like heaven there was a place yeah. where all the dreams were were possible. Right. And, uh, and my, I brought my
2: inventions there to show people. My and how inventions. old were you about this time, remember? 11. 11 years old. 11, okay. 11, 12. And, okay, how about this? Can you describe a couple of the things you invented at that age? Like what did the 11 year old David Copperfield show these seasoned magicians? Because <laughs> you obviously impressed them with some of the things you brought in. Right? I had a thing in French class. I didn't,
0: you know, I was in French class and um, there was a flare pen. Remember flare pens? Absolutely. I remember that. Name. So the flare pens, I'm sitting there looking, not paying attention to the glass, mm-hmm. and I notice it has a certain property about it that mm. could use, be used in the magic effect. And I knew enough about magic technique mm-hmm. that there was a, another effect with a clock that had a method where you could tell the um, people, could set a clock and cover it up and you'd know the time on the clock. Mm. And the method of that clock illusion kind of existed in the, flare pen, so I kind of took that knowledge and put it on this thing, uh, and um, made what I called mento pen. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It mento a, pen. He was a mind reading pen, mento pen. Very nice. Um, not mentos like you know the sweet sugary thing, right? But mentalism, mento pen. Um, and I uh, I brought that into C Harry Lorraine, guy mm-hmm. I just mentioned before, right? Who was writing Tarbell seven and um he and lou tan and irv tan liked my my little invention mm-hmm. my adaptation of a similar principle let's put it that way and put it in tarbell seven well 12 year old having an invention Tarbell that's Seven crazy. is really makes you feel wow, oh, that's pretty good okay yeah. okay i can suck at baseballs all right and you guys know.
2: just so you know the non-magic the tarbell course in magic i mean is the definitive like first uh, set of volumes that was the go-to for magicians for the, the encyclopedic knowledge of magic that was out there and that sort of thing. From the 20s, starting in the 1920s. Yes. Uh, by a guy named Harlan Tarbell. Mm-hmm. Anyway,
0: um, they had a, another volume, Volume 7, they, they put out when I was 12.
2: And that's uh, that was my, my thing. So that's, that's the kind of thing that I, I was doing. Very nice. So Now, there is a big leap for someone to be doing that type of thing To being a professional you know we talked a little bit about that so what made you think that yeah that's that's what i got to do what do you remember that moment because it is a big moment where you say and for many performers and i found this out david and this myself included most people it's not this is what i want to do it's like this is what i have to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) you almost feel like you have no choice was what what was your feeling like and and where were you in your life at that point well, you said it. You're right.
0: That's it. You have to, you know, my mother wanted to protect me and mm-hmm. my father wanted me to do it kind of because he wanted to be an actor mm-hmm. and uh, we he, to feed us, he gave it up. Um, and uh, my mother was kind of the realist of the group and he was mm-hmm. the dreamer of the group. And um, I kind of had to do it, you know, I, I knew I had to do it mm-hmm. um, and I loved it, but to actually do it and eat is pretty two scary things. at first. It's a scary thing. Yeah. And were you still, you're still a teenager at this point, yeah, right? Yeah. No, I um, I sent my parents to see Siegfried and Roy. Mm-hmm. Were they what? in Vegas at that time? Vegas, or? Vegas at that time. Oh wow. Yeah. At the MGM, they were at the MGM mm-hmm. at the time, and Siegfried came out and talked to my mother, and my, I had a note prepared for Siegfried. Uh, you know, I really want to do this as a job. Tell my parents it's okay you know you can do the same act over and over again it's okay you can have a, have a career at this thing yeah and they weren't famous at that point but they right. magicians knew who they were and he was very gracious and he came and he says let him do it <laughs> he says to wow. my, my mom so that was a nice gift that i got from siegfried
2: you got siegfried and roy to sign off yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're doing this as a yeah. career Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, that's crazy. crazy i don't crazy. think i've heard that story no yeah and I, I still have the note i have the note really but yeah pretty crazy so you had to take your parents to Las Vegas to convince them that this is what you wanted they to
0: do. They went on their own. They, okay. I sent with a note. I gave them written information, written mm-hmm. instructions. And he was very, you know, Roy was back there with the Tigers. Siegfried came out at the coffee shop and sat with them and said, he didn't know me. He had no, didn't see my work. Yeah. But he was very nice. He later regretted it. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know, what were those first few years like for you? I'm sure you had your moments of, this is going to be great, and what the hell am I doing, <laughs> and that sort of thing. As you know, mm-hmm. in this business, you know, when I was 18, I
0: got this yeah. gigantic break. I was just singing and dancing in a show in Chicago. It lasted mm-hmm. for a year. I was a star in Chicago for a whole year. Yeah. And this musical built around me by the producers of Grease. Mm-hmm. They created the show called The Magic Man. And I thought, oh, my life is set. It's going to be fantastic. Uh-huh. And I come back to New York nothing you know at at ads and
2: variety i was knocking on doors i lived in this little apartment and new york is so cold in that way by the way too you know you know when you come back and you know you're you're as anonymous as everybody on the streets and everything after getting all that love it doesn't translate you know it doesn't translate you know new york is a whole other level of it is of uh, you know what what you need to
0: do, and then when you have it in New York, it lasts for a while, and then it goes away again. That's true. Yes, <laughs> so exactly. It's like it's short memory, like in Hollywood. You know, it's the last movie the last TV show. Yeah. It is. Uh, it's. Uh, you always have to keep reinventing, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, you know, I starved in New York, but yeah, it's at that time. It was great, wow. though. But in retrospect, mm-hmm. I had all these albums. I lived in the we sublet an apartment from a few a couple of actresses, mm-hmm. uh, and then all the hollywood musicals and bernstein and and, uh, mm. and broadway show tunes and all that kind of stuff and i listened to them and i created amazing stuff
2: were you always a fan of that stuff yeah uh, yeah which parent uh liked that stuff or introduced you or both. did you come to it on your own if it wasn't a career choice it mm. was a great thing to do i, I right. grew up on, on you know camelot i mean you and, grew up in the heyday let's be honest yeah I mean, that really was the magical time. Broadway, you're talking about? Absolutely. I think so, too.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, it's great today, too. But yeah. at that time, you know, Camelot and Sound of Music mm-hmm. and uh, Oliver, and, you know, these are just amazing, yeah. inspirational times. You know, I, my parents took me when I was seven or eight years old mm-hmm. uh, to see Fiddler on the Roof on mm-hmm. Broadway and Zero Mostel. And, um, and we're watching these people on stage. And I said to my mother... I said, what do those guys do for a living? Mm-hmm. Are they dentists? Are they? Yeah. Uh, are they, are <laughs> they? You know, uh, you know, do they work at? You know, the, yeah. the, the, the library was that. My mother says no. That that's their job. Yeah. I said that's what they do for a living. They can do that for a living. She says, yeah. She, she forgot the fact they were waiting tables when they're yeah. <laughs> when, they, when the show was
2: closed. <laughs> but the Z- fact- <laughs> Zero Mostel, of course, uh, from the blacklist. I mean. Yep. He kind of made his return in Fiddler, and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, yeah, yeah. which was the other show. And the producers, don't forget the producers. And the producers, which my, great, came after yeah. One of my great,
0: you know, favorite movies. Is, you know, I have the script, Mel Brooks' actual script from the producers, oh, that's where great. It's, uh, the title on the book it says, um, cover of the script says, S- uh, Springtime for Hitler, and Hitler is crossed out and says the producers handwritten <laughs> on there because you couldn't say Hitler at that time. Right. But, um, but you know, wow! I got a chance to see all that stuff, and yeah. really, really love it, and uh, uh, you know, changed it changed my life. And I had to figure how do how do you do that? How do mm-hmm. I how do I do what I'm good at, which is magic? They let me yes. do magic, but I loved. Bob Fosse and I loved mm-hmm. Jerome Robbins and I loved Hal Prince. I yeah. loved I loved that. And so, how do I combine those two to kind so of So you're this let me
2: Broadway romantic in this magic world that doesn't really have an appreciation for that necessarily. Yeah. So you're kind of at a crossroads. You must have been like, "Can I?" Were you thinking, "Can I put this in my act?" I mean, yeah. I don't want to just do That's tricks. True. So how That's do true. you make that jump from just you know being a magician to being? David Copperfield, I would say. Yeah. It's a lot of criticism, you know. You mm-hmm. you'd, you'd really make you an You got a lot of arrows in <laughs> this, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then everybody, when you make it work, everybody does it that way. You mm-hmm. know, that's how it works. Yeah. But, um, no, I just really, really... Uh, um, I, I loved, you know, Ben Vereen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to see Pippin when I was... You know, about sixteen years old, yeah. and I hung out with Bob Fosse and that, all that—that that whole world back. Sneaking in backstage, Jules Fisher. Wow! You know, uh, trying to help them with the magic so I could get yeah. some of that show business rubbing off on right, me. You right, right. And and uh, eventually it worked. You know, but I was—you know—a lot of people thought I was crazy and just—you know.
2: What was that first piece that you did that you could call the the piece? You said this is it. I got it. It keeps happening. You know, I keep
0: trying to f- refigure it out. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, you know. I think I did a whole series of things at the Tannins Jubilee mm-hmm. um, which is a big convention for magicians where I did a costume trunk illusion as a detective number mm. like uh, Fred Astaire and the bandwagon did the girl hunt ballet Yeah, so I did the costume trunk as that, I played a detective trying to find the right costume, and the girl appeared. Yeah. I took a zigzag, uh, uh, which is an illusion. We cut a girl in three pieces by yeah. Robert Harbin, and I did it as a date with a magician. Mm-hmm. I did
2: American- a... merit date that obviously didn't go... <laughs> it went no. pretty good. She got back together, <laughs> Yes, okay, fair um, enough. I mm-hmm.
0: did, a, you know, at the time, uh, a movie called... That's Entertainment came out. Jack mm-hmm. Haley put together all this MGM musicals. Yeah,
2: I think they had three of them, I think. They, yeah. yeah. And the first
0: one, they, and they were all pretty good and there's so much material in that stuff of mm-hmm. really brilliant Busby Berkeley and, you know, just incredible, you know, Judy Garland, Fred Astaire, Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. you know, Gene Kelly, big idol of mine. Yeah, man, And I, I said, I, I love this. How can I make that? This is what I love. How do I put that into it? And so mm-hmm. those, I took cl- some classic illusions and I did a, Happy Days was a big mm-hmm. success back then. And um, I, I did a vanishing radio as a 50s routine, as a greaser, kind of playing Fonzie at the right. time. Henry Winkler just came to the show. This is probably the nicest guy besides you in show business. No,
2: Henry Winkler is the nicest guy in show business,
0: period. Yeah. Nobody's even close. Yeah. Right. So he came to the show. very, very kind. But, you know, I totally was inspired by him and that character to do a, a kind of a greaser mm-hmm. character to vanish a radio. Classic piece of magic, but sure. framing it that way. So, when I did all those things, people liked it a lot. They said, "Okay, that's a point of view that's 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 different." Mm-hmm. And uh, that's Joe Cates, Phoebe Cates' father, uh, um, uh, saw my reel of stuff, of this mm-hmm. th- and he said, "You know." You can probably you know do something with this. Originally, I went to see Jack Rollins and all the people that had you know was managing Steve Martin, all the comedians mm-hmm. and so forth. Rollins and Jaffe, mm-hmm. and uh, they said, "Yeah, I like you, but no, <laughs> go see Joe Cates across the street."
2: <laughs> That's <laughs> hilarious. And
0: uh, they sent me there, and he liked Discovery. He put me on TV. Wow. And and uh, put me on with uh, Fred Silverman. Liked what I did, yeah. so they put me on as the host of the Magic of ABC. Mm-hmm. And that was a show where I had Donnie Marie were on there and Kate Jackson and, wow. and Howard
2: Cosell and, and Abe Vigoda and all they, these people. They I, loved that kind of stuff back in those days, like Battle of the Network Stars yeah, and all but, that kind no, of No, but all those
0: people did magic with me mm-hmm. to introduce the new fall season. Oh, okay. And so I was the kind of the host of a big commercial. Thing. Right, and you know, Donnie and Osmond—they knew exactly where had to move and where the camera was and the lens and where the close-up was. Amazing! I didn't know what to do with my hands. I was like, just you know, even though I had stage time, mm-hmm. no, really, no clue. That was beyond me. So it was trial by fire for me. that they—they—they right. you know, they, they liked my point of view. I did this. I was Cindy Williams and Penny Marshall. F- f- amazing! I could do comedy with these of them. Yeah. And I'm kind of like shy and kind of like this, but I got through it. <laughs> and um, uh, I did the the. the um, shower scene from Psycho with Penny Marshall mm-hmm. and Cindy Williams. Right? Sounds appropriate. And it was totally appropriate. Right. And um, we had the Hitchcock thing, making his cameo a little flat cut out. Um, <laughs> and funny. um But it was, at least had a point of view. You know, right. It was not, uh, Doug Henning was out there doing a terrific job, but I needed my own point of view, and that was the point of view. It was musicals and story and that kind of stuff, and that kind of evolved, and finally right. I was inventing my own things by that point and, and finding, you know, new ways of... Uh,
2: taking this art form in a new direction it was kind of I guess uh uh when you started doing your specials for CBS I guess that was the year after yeah, yeah that's when for me I was like wow there's something different going on and I think the magic rope and everybody kind of noticed that you had arrived at that point because it's kind of an intersection of this and then you start bringing the spectacle in also and so that part of it was kind of new, right? Because you have to do something for television. Mm. Was that a conscious thought of your two? Like, I can't... There, something bigger has to happen here and I have to reach into another area. Well, it was yeah. a mistake. You know, we learn from mistakes and just yeah. accidents
0: happen. Uh, you know, the, the big mega illusions, which hadn't been done before, Right. Uh, was a product of wanting to do something you could promote. Ah, you know, okay. I, you know uh, back in the 50s, Milbourne, Christopher vanished an elephant. Mm-hmm. You know... It wasn't that great. It was a great publicity, you know, title, Vanishing Elephant. Sure. But the illusion was not so great. And Houdini, of course, famously at the Hippodrome. Also Vanishing Elephant. Mm-hmm. Not the greatest illusion. Right. You know, but I wanted to do, the challenge was to do something that would actually be good, you know, mm-hmm. and be promotable. So mm-hmm. to vanish an Airplane was that thing. So I designed this thing. I had a little help from Christian Feschner, mm-hmm. a famous uh, producer in France. And vanished in an airplane. I uh, did it, surrounded with spectators, all blindfolded, holding hands, mm-hmm. silhouettes on top of the, on the box. Made very kind of pretty good decisions. I had scaffolding around it, and the plane disappeared. Interviewing people afterwards, and it got an amazing reaction. It was yeah. a, it was a really good piece of magic. Of course, I would make it better today, knowing <laughs> what I know. But mm-hmm. at the time, it was. Pretty good, right? Uh, shiny jacket, not so good. But the but the but the hair <laughs> too hard on yourself. Haircut, haircut, not so good. Did. But the illusion was went viral before viral. We knew right. what it was, and I was really disappointed by that. You know this what thing. Really disappointed about? because I worked so hard on the rest of the show. You know the rest of the show was really personal stories the mm-hmm. ballerina and the, the dance piece.
2: I worked so hard on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, funny. I've I remember so much of that. It's just emblazoned in my brain. I remember those dance routines and that kind of stuff. It was, to me, I was like, I just loved all of it because I loved that intersection. You know me, I'm a film lover as well. You know, that somebody was doing something new because it started, I didn't want Magic to get in that hokey area, which it was starting to get into. Yeah. You know, it just felt stagnant at that point,
0: you know. So the effort was to keep moving it. So there was the dance combination, the comedy combination. I would do, the, you know, let's burn a deal. I would do a game show. Everything had to have some kind of mm-hmm. reason to exist. And I love that. And the airplane was a, a great illusion outside, uh, which is groundbreaking, I guess, to do something outside. Right. Uh, with the audience outside. Uh, but... I want them to like everything else. <laughs> yes. I cared about the other stuff. And mm. I said, oh my God, they like that? You like that? Now you got to feed that you know, beast. you got to feed that beast. So I had to feed the beast to put what was missing in an illusion of that kind of scale. Mm-hmm. So the Statue of
2: Liberty came about. Okay, how did that, the idea, and guys, for the young people that didn't get a chance to see it, I think they could still see it on YouTube right now. In its day... I mean, this is where the Houdini comparisons start happening with you in your career. Nobody had even <laughs> dared to do something on this scale to vanish the Statue of Liberty. The, the, the uh, lead up to this there was kind of unprecedented at that time. I don't know if you felt it, uh, you know, because you were inside of it. What, what do you mean? The lead, the the promos for it and everything. I remember everybody talking about it saying... Yeah. There's no way this is going to happen. I don't know what this guy is going to do. But people were so excited to watch what was going to happen. But now, okay, so I want to ask you, how did this idea come about? And this is really the spectacle in David Copperfield. That's what you are at this point. right? So, you know, I really wanted to have meaning. Right. To do a big thing,
0: but have meaning. So right. having the Statue of Liberty, suddenly you have amazing meaning. People have, are invested in the symbolism of what it is. Mm-hmm. I could tell a great lesson in freedom how we take liberty for granted mm. and I wanted to um to kind of do something spectacular but would have something grounded in a relatable important thing I went to see Frank Capra gigantic Frank Capra fan it's a wonderful life Mr. Mm-hmm. Smith goes to Washington Frank Capra's company was called Liberty Films he he uh, was in his 80s at the time mm. And I said, "Please help me. I want to vanish the statue of liberty. Mm-hmm. I want to show have people think for a minute and appreciate what we have, our
2: freedoms that we have. Uh, imagine what the world would be like without liberty? Did you have a method at that point, or you just yeah. okay and did it start with that vision first, and then the method followed? The, I think that I knew that the idea would be
0: have a great resonance method came quick okay um and uh, layers and layers of people around it with Kodak. I was doing Kodak commercials at that time. Right, so I had Kodak true. cameras around it. I had, it yeah. had helicopters circling. Oh, one showed up on the day of shooting. It was supposed to be two. Mm-hmm. One showed up, um, plus a camera helicopter. Right. Pan Am existed. I made a tr- deal with Pan Am to, uh-huh. uh, to pay <laughs> for the helicopters. Anymore, yeah. No, they disappeared like the statue. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he, the, the point was, I knew I had to do something great. So I went to see Frank Capra. And I said, I want to talk about my mother seeing liberty for the first time, Ooh. seeing the statue for the first time, uh, mm-hmm. how important she came from a place that was losing their liberty. My father came from Russia, also losing their liberty. Mm-hmm. And I want to tell that story. Please help me tell this story. And um, Frank Capra said, I'll help you, but on one condition, that you're going to try and fail. Ooh. You're going to try to make it disappear, and it's not going to work. And I said... Um... <laughs> what do you mean he says mm-hmm. well liberty can't vanish mm-hmm. it can't vanish and uh i said mr capra i don't think cbs is going to go for this idea of right. me failing is not it.
1: how magic works mr capra no
0: <laughs> offense <laughs> uh, and i fought with him uh-huh.
1: for about four
0: hours in his house and i saw the fire of the man who had to uh overcome the obstacles of harry cohen the famous uh, studio head mm-hmm. you know and right. he you know Capper was a sh- diminutive diminutive in size mm-hmm. and uh, he went to battle with me in a nice way um i said but liberty can vanish look around in certain places in the world how it has vanished mm-hmm. but boom boom boom! finally i convinced him and he helped me write what is you know the show today mm-hmm. um you know, years pass, 30 years pass, and there's a show called The Americans. Mm-hmm. Really respected, fantastic show. Love that show. And the producers called me and they said, you know, we were teenagers when we watched You Vanish, the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And it meant a lot to us. We have a show about spies in that exact same time. Mm-hmm. Russian spies, and we think there's going to be a great idea here to do a show about you giving the speech about liberty in front of mm. these Russian spies and this in a family of two kids and the thing. Mm. And I said, that's a great idea. And I was so flattered and honored they did an entire yeah. episode about that Right. Um, from the perspective of Russian spies watching that yes. in the 80s. So it has resonance you know it it does last and i think it lasts not because just because it's a big illusion mm-hmm. i don't think it's my best illusion at all i think the airplane thing actually was a better illusion but the idea of it and what was behind it and the amount of effort that went into that the torture mm-hmm. that went into it, torture was really um, was worth it
2: i think a lot of people may be surprised to learn how much a magician cares about storytelling you know, and even to this day, when I watch your show last night, storytelling is such an integral part of what you do. It, your, your show doesn't exist without a good story, you know. Um, how how much does that keep motivating you to come up with things? And how integral is that to even just thinking of, of effects and stuff to you now? You know, I have to find things that are
0: worth doing. Mm-hmm. You know, what's worth doing? I've done a lot of stuff. You know, it's like a filmmaker or, or a series producer, or mm-hmm. creator like yourself, you know, or if you're doing stand up, what's the point? What's the reason for doing this? Right. What's going to, if you've done lots and lots of stuff, you know, what's the reason for doing this? So, you know, in the current show, it was about family. You know, I mm-hmm. lost my parents. So I did a lot of, in this show, it's about trying to rejoin mm-hmm. with them and try yeah. to connect, undo, uh, or, or actually do what hadn't been done mm-hmm. with those relationships. And
2: I think with COVID, it's even more resonant, you know, the, yeah. um, so many people have lost loved ones in the yeah. past couple of years. Yeah, and uh, we keep fighting to
0: make that not happen. It's still yeah. a fight. So, you know, the, the show is kind of a, uh, trying to make things right, trying to make things right with magic or mm-hmm. in the in, in the case of a, a movie, you know, it's the Woody Allen thing, you know, he, Annie Hall, he makes the scene mm-hmm. the, where the, the, the the relationship becomes good. Right. We're in t- Wouldn't it be
2: nice if real life was <laughs> like, like this? Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: um, And that's kind of what I do. I, I do mm-hmm. that. I kind of solve, you know, I, I go into a home movie to solve a pro- family problem of mine, you know, to go mm-hmm. back in a whole m- home movie. I like mm-hmm. that idea. Um, you know, we all have those home movies. They mean a lot to us. But to yeah. actually go into that movie and right or wrong, uh, you know, what am I going to do? Okay what did I like when I was a kid what was interesting as a kid you know animatronics I loved animatronics I loved mm. you know going to the New York World's Fair and seeing dinosaurs and so forth yeah, yeah. so yeah we are gonna have a dinosaur on the show okay right. and it doesn't exist in magic and the, any of these books in this library that were sitting here it doesn't exist you know having an alien aliens and you know and spaceships and all the time travel mm-hmm. you know doesn't exist in magic really um, to do it in that you know in a way that's you know, compelling to me. You know, trying to find ways that haven't been done, yeah. you know, in our art form. And, um, you know, then it's fun. You know, I do a thing in, in, in the audience with a levitation of a boy, yeah. you know. Uh, and um, it's interesting technically because I'm surrounded, I'm doing a levitation surrounded by, by the surround audience. It. yeah. Um, so that's new. That's worth doing because it's new. It's in the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I didn't want to leave it there so I made it a story about... You know, a a wish of somebody. You know, Mm. Um, we all have those, right? So it's just layer after layer of finding things that would resonate with people who have nothing to do with magic. Right.
2: Always a connection. And um, we talked a little bit about last night about technology and how um, Arthur C. Clarke, I think, said that, uh, you know, at any point technology is indistinguishable from magic at many points, you know, in history. It's funny, the more technological we get, I feel the more people are interested in magic experience. Isn't that weird? Yeah. It's weird,
0: right? Because back in the 90s, James Cameron did uh, Terminator and people were transforming, or, yeah. or uh, what's the underwater movie? The Abyss. Mm-hmm. You know, it's special effects. He's like, you know, time. it's Jurassic Park. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, how are we going to compete with that? Right. But we did. <laughs> they kicked you in the butt. Yeah. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm on, I'm on a, a screen, smaller, I'm sorry, I'm on a smaller screen than James Cameron, you know, but it's have to communicate mm-hmm. do something fantastic incredible through that screen and um it's good i like the challenge of that you know yeah. i like the fact that people are doing amazing good things yeah you know what do we do when we have a phone that does what we saw as a kid you can have a conversation <laughs> a video conversation yeah you know how dare we complain
2: about not having good service right
0: you know it's like I, it's a phone
2: <laughs> it's almost made magic simpler too like uh Sometimes a simple card trick is almost as powerful as... You know, because <laughs> it's simplicity, you know? Yeah, the simplicity, yeah. You know, I
0: try to avoid the whole card trick thing because so many people are doing really, really well, yeah. you know? So I'm trying to have uh, my iconography as dinosaurs and aliens and trying to do something that doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't look familiar. But you're right. The simple thing, of yeah. vanishing of a coin, if it's that strong, right? because it's there, it's so simple... Really resonates. Yeah. Um, in my big stage productions, I have things that I think are familiar. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have you know f- funny colored shaped boxes. I have things. The all the items are kind of things people could see in everyday right. life. We relate um, to. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, all of that. You know, it wasn't the box for Cindy Williams and, and Penny Marshall. It was a shower. You know, hopefully yeah. we all have showers. Mm-hmm. You know, so that would kind of be something that they can kind of feel associated with. It wasn't yeah. an off putting regular one of those right. you know um, so
2: yeah and do, even though you know we talked about you know you looking forward you know especially as a young magician and performer and now once you start collecting there's an appreciation a bigger appreciation for the past is there anybody now who you feel like you really connect to where you maybe hadn't felt that before but going through this process you're like wow in the past, yeah, someone from the past, or maybe they don't necessarily have to be in the book, but maybe someone. They're, no, they're in the book. Mm-hmm. They're in the book. You know, all of them
0: have one element. You mm-hmm. know, Houdin from a um, an inventor. Robert Houdin invented amazing things, and also used ether. Ether was like the internet back then. You'd have you'd have yeah. a chemical that could make somebody go to sleep. Mm-hmm. He took that and he wafted it through the audience, and he would levitate. He'd suspend his son. Mm-hmm. Um, so he used well, the topic of conversation yeah. well I'm using iPhones in the show right. everybody uses their iPhones right? and the magic happens with their iPhone in the show they take home magic with them in my live show that's not unlike the magical thing of that time which was ether Yeah. Um, you know uh, I loved the invention the automatons that he did mm-hmm. uh, all the robotics that he did certainly reflect in my show with the animatronics I have in my show Yeah. Uh, Houdini I I uh, associated with because of the simplicity of what worked for him right relatable escaping from you know escaping from things people could really associate that was aspirational to escape from things. yeah why was houdini so big i mean he's still associated because of that yeah. it's because of that not because of his magician uh-huh. it's because he escaped from stuff people go oh, you know it was a time we were all kind of bound up it's the, imagination. Of kind of like of that, the imagination of that right? imagination like, yeah i want to mm-hmm. could i you know, nobody, he vanished an elephant. It wasn't that good. Nobody dreams about vanishing an elephant. <laughs> Pe- That's not going to make you indelible, right? No. People mm-hmm. dream about getting out of jail.
1: You know, even yes. if they don't want to go
0: to jail. The idea of right. having that freedom or have nothing can bind them, it was kind of a superhero thing. Yeah. I've tried my career. I flew to fly something that's aspirational. People mm-hmm. really relate to that. Finding things that were really relatable were, right. were things, you know, I escaped from Alcatraz on one of my shows. Mm-hmm. Some really good things in that show. Some pretty, not so good things, but pretty good things in that show. But the, the point is, finding things that people could really associate with mm-hmm. is why he is still in part of our conversation yeah Uh, wasn't so much a musician but uh, to escape from things was it Um, Channing Pollock was this amazing performer did you know Channing no I never got a chance to meet Mm -hmm. him you could have because he Mm -hmm. was around when you were doing this stuff absolutely but he was a really handsome guy did something very simple and just very elegant Producing birds and so forth, probably mm-hmm. couldn't do that that much today, but but he just performed so well. Ricciardi, another great magician in the book. Yeah, did you see Ricciardi? Yeah, I've saw the the
2: clips that you showed me, but, but I wasn't familiar with with Ricciardi before. He was great. Not as an inventor. Wasn't but Houdin. an amazing performer. Performer spectacular. Yeah.
0: He was Gene Kelly good. Yeah. He was Frank Sinatra good. Right. He was Fred Astaire good as, as a say, performer. You're, per-
2: you're performing for those lights, for those footlights. It's like yeah. you're putting it out there. The way he moved on stage. Unbelievable. Every moment was big and had yeah. purpose. And at certain points yeah. in my show,
0: I think about him Yeah, when I'm just moving a certain way just to kind of get that feeling. You right, know, right. A lot of... I mean, do you... When you... Or doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. Do you channel people in your head? Do you think of people? Well,
2: it's interesting because with stand-up, and I guess with everything, you start off by almost imitating, you know. The beginning. In the beginning, in the very beginning. And for me, I would also channel behavior or I model behavior to give the impression that I was that I didn't care. This is, this is <laughs> because I was nervous. When you start right. off, you're nervous. That's so true. I would have points in my show where... I might do that, you know, or you know you try to compensate exactly. for that. Exactly. Wow. And maybe after a year I didn't need that anymore, wow. you know. Who did that? Who'd you take that from? Well a lot of this comes from this comes from Jack Benny. Yeah. This comes Red from Skelton. people who would smoke the cigar oh, yeah, yeah. to let them laugh. Right. You know, the cigar was a huge tool and right. said right. I would take the drink. To you know, uh-huh. it would be water, but I take the drink so they could relax and uh-huh. they get to feel you more, your energy as a person, rather than feeling that right. you're pushing something. Yeah. And like I would learn little tricks, like as you're taking water, you start to talk, you stop, you take some water, uh-huh. and then you laugh uh-huh. at someone directly, uh-huh. and then the whole audience thinks there's a secret thing going. I mean, there's so many things you learn just by learning to relax, like learning to relax, the need to stage. relax, yes, the need to relax, correct, you know relaxing on stage is the magic key to connection with the audience and finding out who you are in the process because that's the key is finding who you are you know not just selling jokes and all that but the audience
0: has to to like who you are exactly understand no you got to be familiar in some way to them so they can really take that away with them but that's interesting that's incredible those little (laughs) moments of
2: almost textbook things did it on purpose from
0: benny from who else
2: Uh, God, there's so much. Uh, Johnny Carson was a big influence um, because I watched The Tonight Show all the time. Flip Wilson was an influence of mine of how he would uh, engage with the audience. I loved how a lot of these performers, it's this silent moments that I always watch more so than the jokes. I talked about this with you last night. I said, David... I love watching your nonverbal stuff, you know, and how your simple engagement with the audience is brilliant, you know, because you're, it looks like you're not doing anything, but you are doing a lot, you know, but it's so, it's what you do now. And here's what I mean by a lot. You can have a gesture where you put the audience at ease and you're allowing a moment to happen, but also you might be in a transition moment during that, you know. You might be setting yourself up geographically on the stage for something important, you know, but it's all in how you're relaxed where the audience isn't going to tense up for any of these things. You know, I'm speaking in a little little code, you know, for for the magic world. But for any performer, it's the ability um, as an actor, it's called public solitude is what you strive for. You know, the ability to be in public and be like you're alone in your room, you know, and have that kind of intimacy that you have with. You know your practice sessions, and with your magic friends, and this, with your buddies. This is a masterclass. This is amazing. Yeah, I yeah, love yeah. this. This yeah, is awesome. This we should
0: do this. Absolutely. Um, um, but it, the, the the audience is an instrument, isn't it? If you yes. really they ha- there is an ability to have a oneness. They yes. become they become a single That's entity that you really if you can do it. Sometimes not so easy. Yes. But if you can really kind of bring that to, to certain places, right? And you know. Uh, I find that you know, when I see different actors. If they're really good, mm-hmm. my show changes for the next week.
2: Yes, which is great. You know, Ideally, that is what you want to have happen, though,
0: yeah. right? Well, I mean, you know, there's like really, really great performers, and I see like really people that have just amazing technique, and I'm right. reminded what I should do more of. You yes. know? it's incredible. Uh, there's a there's an actress named Sutton Foster
2: oh I love Sutton Foster she's a I mean a Broadway legend yeah Yeah. and you just watch
0: some of her best work yeah you know when I watch it and um, and some actors whose names I can't really say because yeah you know they've done they've come into disrespect a little bit Mm -hmm. but for various reasons but 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 I do better shows yeah because I'd say oh I'm reminded of a level you know, uh, of at- attitude mm-hmm. and speed right. and just, uh, you know, I mean, the people at home can't see what I'm doing. but Just, right, right, right. just you know.
2: He's gesticulating g- very eloquently right <laughs> now, <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> But I find that
0: to be true. You know, it yeah. should be in me all the time. Mm-hmm. But I find when I see great performances, it does affect yeah. what I'm doing. And, um, you know, there's so much in my world that I'm paying attention to. It's not just performance. Right you know I have to be funny and cute when they're setting up an illusion There's backstage a lot going on yes exactly. and, and it can be disaster you <laughs> yes, know and I get correct. blamed as you know right you know Celine Dion can do a show mm-hmm. and a lighting rig can fall down or there could be gonna a thing and not going to blame her stop at all. messing with our queen is right. what the audience is going to exactly. say exactly but if that happens to me in my show none of my it's not my fault right I'm a bad magician. I'm not talking yes. about that thing.
1: It's so unfair. Yeah, yeah. But it's but it's a fact.
0: It is a fact, you know. Yeah. And if the lighting cue is wrong or it exposes something, mm-hmm. they go off. You know, the show will be just about that. You know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Have you ever um, had a moment on stage where it it made you think? You know what? I can't do this bit this way. I'm going to have to do it this way. Has that ever happened to you? explain more Give me an example. Well, second. where the audience experience changes how you do something. I've had that with stand up, but maybe stand up is a little different because it's in it's what a, way tell what you're saying. Well, um I think with jokes sometimes you can maybe get a certain response and it's not quite what you were looking for and in it kind of informs that you have to do something else with it. Like, it's, you you keep thinking that this thing... is going to work. Yes, but it doesn't. Right. You know, it doesn't quite land the way that you want it to. It happens and, all the time, that and, part. And the audience keeps telling you that, but you're convinced that they're wrong right. until you realize, no, the audience is actually right. right. You know...
0: Well, that's often. That, that example, you know, I have uh, really believe in something yeah. and I just keep beating the shit out of it till you know, finally, <laughs> right. finally I'll find the way... It's a pause, it's an intonation, Mm -hmm. it's a thing, you know, and I, you know, there's a joke in the show uh, currently that, um, and I, you know, it lands a certain way, but Mm -hmm. then for three shows after, it kind of, it's okay, you know, it's just that. Yeah,
2: it's like, what happened to that moment, right?
0: (laughs) And it's because... I don't know if it's because I have a very diverse audience. I Mm -hmm. have people um, because it's magic. I get families. I'll get the EDM audience. I'll get Mm -hmm. uh, lots of people from foreign countries. You know, I'm thinking maybe it's not, you know. I'm not getting consistent groups, which is a good thing for me, you know, from a business standpoint. I'm drawing from a very big group of people that like magic for different reasons, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, from Different political spectrums, majorly different, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't know, but
2: it's fun. I like solving that problem. I do yeah. enjoy that. Is that the thing that, um, so for where you are now in your career, what's the thing that is fueling you? Do you want, would you ever want to go on the road again? I mean, it's great having your place here in Vegas and everything. Do you want to go to places maybe you've never been geographically, or are you looking to do more? Like, do you feel like mm, magically there's something I haven't, mm, I just haven't done yet that I'm trying to do? Is there that feeling at all? Or yeah, I mean, hmm. as far as performing goes, I mean, I love what I do. I love yeah.
0: doing my shows. I do 15 shows a week. Yeah, that's a lot. No days off.
2: You perform every night. Every night. And then that's I take. Crazy. And then
0: I take 10 separate weeks off during the year so it's it's pretty good I work hard during those uh, 42 weeks a year okay and then you can really just shut down in two two days I'll be off out of the country in two days Mm -hmm. um, and um, I've done 10 world tours Mm -hmm. that's a lot 10 times around the world right I've been everybody I've been everywhere except the Middle East Mm -hmm. I think uh, and Iceland I just went to
2: Iceland you must go to Iceland. I have been to Iceland. You it's have? fantastic. It's incredible, right? Yeah, I was in Keflavik. Uh, it was like 20 years ago or something. It's fantastic. Anyway, I performed just about everywhere,
0: you know, 10 times around. Mm-hmm. So the the need to do that, even though audiences are great on the road, mm-hmm. you know, in Vegas, you're going to get what, whoever's in town. You right. Know? And when you go to their city, they really are, know you and yeah. you're kind of, you know, you feel like the Rolling Stones. Really right, windy. right. And Vegas is great, but it's... You know, that's a lot of shows mm-hmm. uh, in in a smaller place, but I really love it. I like it a lot. So, what do I do? What's interesting to me is inventing new things, but also creating new technology, hmm. working with scientists, mm-hmm. working with physicists to do things for real. That's what I'm doing. Interesting. I'm focusing on things that I can replicate on stage, mm-hmm. can prototype on stage that could be used for real to change change how we do
2: life. Here. Is there a current example of that that you can share? You're not I can't quite share ready to share, can't, yeah. Can't,
0: not ready to share, but okay. but I'm I'm doing amazing um kind of seminars uh on uh, on the islands that I have mm-hmm. with really smart people and try to how do we take what we know mm-hmm. and not just you know I do really real the, the things on stage are real right. except for one thing which is I'm using illusion to get sure the really impossible part to happen. Mm-hmm. so i'm able to do things pretty good inventions on stage and there's only one thing we have to overcome in in nature that i'm using illusions for right now mm-hmm. so that's interesting to me you know that's something that can is worth doing if we can
2: make it work or even
0: to plant yeah. the seed
2: of it yeah, do you ever f- hope that this is an art form that can unite people in a time when we feel so divided, this type of thing? You know, I have illusions, especially when you can travel all around the world and do it in different places, you know. I wrote a New York Times
0: mm-hmm. um, op-ed piece about the shared sense of wonder, mm-hmm. how I can have in the audience people from the Middle East of very different mm-hmm. beliefs and uh, conflicts, and through a shared sense of wonder, it's amazing how they act with each other. Mm. it's just incredible um, and uh, how that does bring te- people together for a moment anyway you right. know? Um, the, the, the need to dream is universal yeah. the need to to have possibilities limitless possibilities mm. is a universal thing yeah. and I watch it happen every night it's very rewarding yeah, um, yeah. so that's what you know I really like that I, you know I'm working on things to uh, help the environment mm-hmm through illusion and um, subliminal uh, um, sharing of ideas, the way people should maybe respect this delicate planet. Yeah. Uh, inventing illusions that will uh, at least communicate a message mm-hmm. that might not get through if I was, you know, doing wonderful
2: work yeah. of people who are doing it the scientific way. I'm doing it through storytelling. That's awesome. I felt like when I was a kid, environmentalism wasn't a political issue. I mean, it may have been. Maybe I'm just naive. But it felt like it was It didn't feel issue. like it. It, it didn't, didn't feel, feel like naive. it, right? It, no. I'm sad that it feels like it now, and I'm hoping that it, it will stop being that, you know, because it is something. I think everybody shares that it poli- the politics of all that stuff gets it, in the middle of it's, un- it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it really to, is. To, I mean, it's uncomfortable to do.
0: It's not easy mm-hmm. to do the right thing. It takes effort to do the right yeah. thing. Um, we have to do it. But I think if we can make it frictionless, Mm -hmm. then more people will sign up for it. Right. Not just the fact that we have to. uh, They have to want to. And um, magic might be a way in. Yeah. Maybe. So that's interesting to me. Okay.
2: David, thank you so much for being here. I have one final question for you before you go. But, guys, I just want to mention wherever you buy books, David Copperfield's History of Magic Whether you're into magic, not into magic, this is a gorgeous, beautiful book. And you kind of get a walk through through David's place here, which is kind of interesting. It's a great Christmas gift. Great Christmas gift. Buy ten of them. Give them (laughs) to your friends. (laughs) exactly. It's (laughs) an affordable, good coffee table book. Beautiful. And some fascinating information here. The story of uh, uh, Chung Ling Su and Ching Lung Fu, those are the, yeah, I always get the names confused, is great history in and of itself. I won't spoil it for you. Read it in the book, uh, the things that have happened in magic and that kind of stuff here's what i have to ask you yes um okay this is kind of a a different type of question david have you ever had an experience yourself that you couldn't explain that was just different that you don't know what to do with that if you have not is that an experience you would like to have i have Mm -hmm. you know uh as a magician, mm-hmm.
0: the idea of experiencing a sense of wonder is less and less. Right. Because that's what you do. Right. You're the one you're behind bringing, the scenes. Yes. You know, I was, once somebody did a coin trick and the coin appeared in my hand and uh, it was, um, I'm giving you the method. Yeah, right I know, Jimmy. I know exactly. Uh, what and for the, for the one moment mm-hmm. of it, it was like miraculous. It yeah. was a great, I was, I, I thanked who did it for me because yes. he, I had the feeling. It only lasted. About 45 seconds. <laughs> but, you know, I just, uh, you know, and I just, for the people who are listening, I just shared the method with my, yes. with a gesture. Sure. Uh, but you right. understand how that could be an Correct. amazing, uh, coins Absolutely. appearing in your hand when nobody's around, boom, like that. Absolutely. It was, an am- it's, for that one moment, it's a great feeling. Yeah. And that's what I, it's, I guess that's my job. It's what I do to people, right? Right. But it cool. happened to me. F- f- for a moment, it happened. Um, on the islands uh, that I have, I have uh, two cans of. That are born, and I watch magical. The transformation is magical. Mm, And you know, do you believe in God? Don't believe in God? You Mm -hmm. know, magicians are skeptics. Mm -hmm. There was a moment of, you know, maybe this, maybe, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe you're up there, you know? There's moments of things where they, you know, within seconds, Mm -hmm. feathers grow. It's like, what? You know, it's Mm -hmm. not an animatronic, it's a living object. This thing that you go, wow you know, going to Iceland, Mm -hmm. you know, watching volcanoes flying in a helicopter over volcanoes. It's like, what? Really? Or you land in a a glacier and there's a waterfall up there. Oh my God. And it makes you feel that feeling that I, I, at my best, I'm trying to give to an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, Would I want to... Know or feel something that's supernatural that I couldn't explain. Absolutely. I think I would. Mm-hmm. You're saying for you? You sure, would. Sure,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Would.
0: And I think, you know, uh, I work with scientists now and physicists. They're predominantly skeptics. They are. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of their job to do that. Mm-hmm. I love watching them react to my magic. Mm. Because the smarter they are, the easier they are to amaze because there's concepts and precepts that they have that magicians use. Absolutely. But to watch their faces experience wonder, they know in their head it's technology behind it. They don't know the technology. Mm -hmm. I'm hiding it in a way. But they experience it. So the answer to your question is I really hope I discover things that make me go, what what is, huh? Mm -hmm. You know, I... Uh, I love that feeling it inspires me and it's the reason
2: to live there you go David Copperfield just gave us the reason to live you guys David Copperfield thank you so much Uh, it's an honor to be here with you sir I really appreciate it thank you for being a great host come to Vegas you guys see David's show it's so good it's going to make you cry though spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) thanks David thank you very much well done